Hello, agents, and welcome to Podcast 13. Okay, so I'm Miranda Butler. I am a PhD candidate in English at the University of California, Riverside, and my specialties are in Victorian fiction and literature and science. Hi, my name is Jillian Nussbaum, and I have a degree in film and media studies with an emphasis in screenwriting from Arizona State University, and I currently work in descriptive video services and captioning for blind and deaf and visually and hearing impaired people. Uh, So that's us. This is our first episode of Podcast 13. I'm sure people are wondering if we are spoiler-free or spoilery or whatever. Um, We do have a fan forum where you can post a spoiler alert and be as spoilery as you like. Generally, the podcast is not big on spoilers because we're just going one episode at a time. So it's not like we're pretending that we have no idea what will ever happen, but we're focusing on each episode as it comes, so that's pretty much going to be our approach to the show. Cool. And I have a summary for this episode. I'll come into every episode with a summary, but just to warn y'all, this one is longer than normal because this episode is longer than normal, and there's a lot to fit in, and we'll... We'll get to some of the ways that this is unusual for a pilot later, but uh, right now we're just going to go with the unusually long summary. Okay, so, after narrowly and clumsily averting an attack against the president, two Secret Service agents receive an abrupt and suspicious transfer to a secret government warehouse in a remote location that claims to house supernatural objects. While the agents work to transfer back to their posts in D.C., They reluctantly accept a mission to investigate a case of a domestic battery on a college campus that may be tied to a supernatural source. Confronted with undeniable proof of a supernatural source, the agents risk their lives to capture the artifact and send it back to the warehouse before it can create widespread damage. After narrowly escaping death and retrieving the dangerous artifact, they return to the warehouse where they must decide whether or not to return to D.C. or remain partners on a new adventure. Awesome. So thank you so much for that summary. We're not going to get all the way through the pilot today because, like you said, it's such a bizarre and very long episode. But what we will do is move through that first incident with the Aztec artifact that's going to get through the museum, the introduction to Artie, the setup with our characters, and then we'll end part one of the very first episode of our podcast once we've reached the iconic Welcome to Warehouse 13 shot with that first title overlay. Um, And then don't worry, we will have plenty to discuss in part two of the pilot of the podcast, and that will be up uh, online very shortly. So let's go ahead and start and dive into the episode. We start off at the museum, and the reason I shout this out is because, wee, 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 first impression alert. Okay. So the very, very first shot we see, I want to go through some first impressions of major moments as we go through this beat by beat, because it can really tell us a lot about like what we're supposed to get from this character. Like the first time we see them, what, what do the writers, producers, the show, what, what does it want us to know about them? Well, in our very first impression of the very first shot of this show is not of any person or character. It's of artifacts, not of a supernatural nature, but artifacts nonetheless. It's pretty interesting that right from the moment the show begins, there's such a strong focus on things. And then we pan immediately to the right of the statues. We see Micah standing there 
like a statue. She, I mean, we can see she's clearly a person, but she's standing stick still and she doesn't even blink until someone else walks by, which I think draws a parallel of her being sort of wooden when we meet her, which I don't know how I feel about as a choice, but it's definitely what they want us to see about her. That is a very helpful thought on the opening because we meet Micah, like we start off by meeting Micah, but in terms of visually what we see, like not in terms of the quote unquote storyline, it is Micah. And then the first line is not spoken by Micah. It's like someone in the background yelling about the museum. Um, And then there's these little kids um, and they are coming in to look at the objects in the museum. And there's the girl who like realizes, I think that Micah has a gun. Oh, she clocks it. She knows. She is experienced. (laughs) (laughs) She sees it and, like, there's this extended, like, I don't know, close-up on this little girl raising her eyebrow at Micah, which is, I don't know why. Like, are are we supposed to think that Micah cares at all what this child thinks of her? Because we know she doesn't, right? Well, I mean, I also think she doesn't want to, A, draw attention to the fact that she's a Secret Service agent, and B, like... I don't think she she might not care what the kid thinks, but I also think she doesn't want to like terrify the child. Yeah, I guess that's true. And these are some of my other thoughts. The dialogue is a tour guide talking to the kids and being like, oh, here's some really cool historical stuff that we have, but I know what you really want to see, the dinosaurs. If you didn't catch this, that's just the dialogue that's going on in the background. And I just, I have a few questions because When we get the Aztec bloodstone, the bloodstone is in front of a dinosaur. And as a curatorial choice, that does not make any sense. Like, you're supposed to be teaching the visitors something actually about history. And Aztecs and dinosaurs didn't coexist. (laughs) That is an inarguable fact. Thank you. (laughs) I will say that they do make it seem like they are in flux and preparation for an event, which I think also is not plausible in reality, but is it plausible in the reality of a TV show Mm. where artifacts are getting moved around? That's true. They do that. They're like, oh, just move all that to the other wall, which just because I have worked at a special collections, which is essentially a museum for books, like, oh, first of all, the insurance problems that would pose if you move anything anywhere (laughs) is a nightmare. And second of all, like, the curator or whoever, like, to tell the story that actually teaches the visitor what they are here to learn, you know? I mean, and that makes perfect sense. Also, this was an event, if you notice... Just jumping ahead slightly, if you notice on Pete's invitation later, there's an extreme close-up on it. The (laughs) event isn't just attended by the president. The event is hosted by the president. I know! It's a special presidential (laughs) invitation. Like, come to my museum. Which, like, I won't say never happens, because, like, also, fun fact, the first time the opening song of Hamilton was ever performed in public was at a White House event so like i don't know what kind of weird stuff in the arts presidents do but maybe that would have an impact on the ability to move things around a museum (laughs) yes i think that is very valid the year is 2009 this episode was released in july of 2009 wouldn't the president be obama 
It's not Obama. Spoilers. We see some white guy walking in later, so it's not him. But Could have been Biden. We don't know. Don't take the dream from me. Because <laughs> I was, okay, I was thinking, I was like, if Obama walked in and was like, I would, I can't do an Obama impression, but if he was like, I would really yeah. prefer that the dinosaur be over there, like, I suppose that would be great. Um, but also Obama wouldn't do that. So maybe. But his Secret Service might, because they're, no matter what the insurance is on any item in the museum, I'm pretty sure American policy is that most insurance goes to the president. Everything else can be moved. <laughs> well, I do have many questions about capitalism later. So the president what? is our what? most valuable <laughs> asset. Yes. Yes. It's for a segment I like to call Heavy Themes. <laughs> okay, it's already my favorite segment. We haven't gotten there yet. Um, okay, so that was very helpful. Um, we begin in the museum, as you mentioned, the shot on Micah. And she's uh, taking no nonsense from the curator or whoever he is who works at the museum who's like, I'm busy right now. And Micah's like, no, you're going to talk to me. You're going to make these adjustments because the president is coming. I'm pretty sure it's Chet. I wrote down beige, unimportant. So, But I did write down that his name was Chet. So Chet, you were seen. You were not completely forgotten. Well, in my mind, I just had a really strong recall of the Black Panther um, curator like the white guy teaching about the african artifacts and then just getting his butt kicked because he's 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 not important so that's not quite what happened here but it's essentially the same thing and again so here's our heavy themes (laughs) like our colonial white man um who is the collector of all these things he's gonna disappear and the show is gonna be about the actual things and you know the the science fiction Mm -hmm. that happens later So speaking of those things, uh, let's go ahead and use that as a segue to introduce our very first artifact expert. Uh, This is a segment we're going to do for every Warehouse 13 artifact. And to kick us off, we have Dr. Elena Alberon from Miami University in Ohio. She is a cultural historian of modern Mexico with a research emphasis on childhood and visual culture. She is the award-winning author of Seen and Heard in Mexico, Children and Revolutionary Culture cultural nationalism, as well as the co-editor of New Approaches to the History of Childhood in Latin America. Based on this introductory scene with the children, I thought it would be an amazing idea to have Dr. Elberon talk about the role that children play in cultural production, particularly within modern Mexico. And we're going to kick this off with a clip from our interview where she explains that. So something I'm um, I'm working on right now, the, the project I'm working on right now is about transnational children's cultural productions and exchanges in the Americas. Um, and most of that is situated or flows through Mexico um, because Mexico is really a, a, a cultural center for and a, and a cultural bridge between the U.S. and other Latin American countries during this time period. But um, – in the 1930s and in the 1940s, the U.S. takes a turn in its cultural orientation towards uh, – and its policy orientation towards Latin America and famously adopts, you know, the good neighbor policy, which is adamantly non-interventionist and sort of pro – pro forma cultural exchanges as a way of um, 
fostering positive diplomatic relations. And so what I'm finding is that children and children's culture formed a really important um, part of these this policy decision, and a lot of that was done as intended to be um, publicity for good uh, international relations. And so children are trotted out on the global stage as uh, being sort of natural diplomats that exchange ideas and appreciate each other's cultures um, naturally. And of course, a lot of that is directed by adults. Um, but through the the Pan American Union, the Pan American Union created a um, a bureau of uh, intellectual cooperation. It's called the Division of Intellectual um, Cooperation. And um, that was intended to create curricular guides, but also and specifically they had a whole set of interest in um, creating a set of visuals about costumes and dress and customs uh, from the Americas that could be introduced to American children and their Latin American counterparts so that they could see each other and see who each other were, what they looked like, and what they dressed like. Um, of course, all of these are taken from um, very ceremonial um, costumes that almost become kind of stereotypical representations of much broader, more diverse, multicultural traditions in the region. Um, and once those images were circulated, they had so much appeal that even the Pan American Union couldn't dial it back at all. <laughs> and so they issued all of these statements saying, keep in mind that these are just um, clothes that are worn on very special occasions by some people, and, and Latin Americans don't dress like this all the time. But nevertheless, pageants and parades and, um, uh, like, these, um, like, craft shows, um were all designed around the celebration of Pan American Day on April 14th. And classrooms all across America, they would hold these pageants where kids dress up like Latin Americans as a way to appreciate their culture. And they, uh, almost without exception, would wear the same set of very staid costumes. Um, the sombrero and the serape and some very specific types of costumes from um, the Andes, uh, from Argentina. Um, but they, it became kind of a very particular visual um, aesthetic of Latin America that was unbreakable and has almost been unchanged since in popular culture. Um, and it almost totally has its origin point in this set of programming from um, from the Pan-American Union. And it was children who were carrying out this, like, embodiment of uh, difference that was supposed to be an act of solidarity with their Latin American brothers and sisters. Amazing. So, Jill, did you have a response to this? Just A+. plus. Like, <laughs> that was one of the things. I didn't have much to add. I am very interested in the way children shape narratives. And so I really like that she is focusing on a children's perspective. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's it's almost hard to add anything besides just saying, like, what an amazing audio clip. And then we, as kind of analysts of this TV show, can pause and 
ask a, a historian about the real role that children play and, and she explained it wonderfully so and I also think that this uh helps us as an audience to read down a little bit too I think that's something important with this series going forward this is a show that's not just it's not Game of Thrones style fantasy it's fun it's lighthearted, but that doesn't mean it's silly and stupid and I think starting with the point of view on children is sort of a smart way to get us into that imaginative headspace and to just sort of accept things as they come it, I think it was subtle it might not have even been intentional but I liked it exactly so moving on uh shall I talk about Pete or no I'll do first impressions because our first impression of Pete is not even really of Pete. It is of the legs of an unseen woman. So body segmentation, not my favorite thing. But then we slowly pan up and we see this beautiful woman who is somewhat nondescript. Her name is Casey. And that's the first introduction we see of Pete. Not of him, but of the kind of woman that we can find him associated with which I put, you know, my little note, which means Invisible Hand of the Network might have done that. That seems very in line with the way they introduced male lead stars in most TV shows of that era. They were like, we're going to show them in a state of undress with a beautiful woman. And then when we do eventually see him, he is half naked with a towel around him, making like his blue steel Zoolander face. And none of his dialogue in that scene meshes with him as a character at all in the rest of the show he says a lot of things that are extremely unattractive to me and certainly not indicative of like the fun kind of person that he proves himself to be over the course of the show why would someone when you don't know who they are and they refuse to tell you why would you sleep with them like it's one thing to be like i want a one night stand no questions asked Whatever, but she specifically says, I know nothing about you and you know everything about me. And he says, that's because you talk more, you talk a lot or something like that. Which like, first of all, Pete is a talkative guy. Who wrote that line? <laughs> like Mike is always making fun of him for talking too much. And I don't know why that's sexy. That seems sort of dismissive and rude, which just doesn't gel with him. That was my first impression. I, that felt like an invisible hand of the network sort of situation. I mean, I agree because this is exactly what I wrote. And I'm way meaner than you. Um, I said we are introduced to fresh out of the showers Pete Latimer during our live tweet. Jill tweeted, how do we show that he's sexy? I don't know. Let's show him having sex a lot. It. It's what they've done. And like you said, it doesn't gel with his character at all. Because we're going to get a later scene when he meets Lena where they recognize that he is quote-unquote in tune, that he is emotionally sensitive. He is kind of, I mean, he is immature, but I don't think of him as a womanizer. Like, he's, he's kind of goofy. I feel like a better way to characterize him would have been not to have him be with like a nondescript woman who means nothing i think a more interesting way to introduce him would be to introduce it in the reverse he's with the, this woman who's too busy for him because he's sort of floundering where he is he he's good at his job but yes. his personal life isn't really anything yeah and i think my final note on it is that i would 
I love what you said. I would be okay with like a sexually liberated character of any gender. And I think that that's fine. And if they even wanted to have it be a very one night stand interaction, that's fine too. Like there are plenty of women who love one night stands. To me, there's something in reading the delivery of Pete's line. It's something like, she's like, okay, call me. And he's like, yeah, and it's obvious that he's not going to. It doesn't seem like him at all. No, and that's the thing, too, is if she got up and left, she was like, thanks for a great time. If she walks out feeling empowered, I love it. But she walks out hoping to see him again. Which we have every reason to believe also that she will, because, again, her line, you know everything about me. So I'm... Assuming that they've had more than one interaction. Maybe. That is a great, that see, yeah, that's a great, I think, theory. And I think if this really is his old job, like he has been working in DC for a while, then he has a regular hookup buddy, which again is less, I think, possibly makes like, if you could headcanon that, like that this is his uh, friend with benefits, then some of his lines may be less offensive if they have an understanding you know somewhere else but she does know nothing about him as we learn later because she's like are you a fireman um you know and and she's looking at his badge and again depicting her as like clueless which is also unfair because she's a server and i think that we should not characterize people in kind of like service jobs as unintelligent i think that's really damaging so and also when you look further in the episode she's not unintelligent she's looking at a good context clue because he he does have his secret service badge but he has his dad's fireman badge she might have seen that and been like ah i figured it out i'm gonna casually mention you're a fireman oh i did not know he has his dad's fireman badge that's the one he's looking at later in the car with uh lorna this makes so much sense now yeah he, he has his uh secret service badge on his belt but in the car, he's holding and looking at his dad's badge. And then the thing that's stuck in his side, that's his dad's badge. Oh, what a good metaphor. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So I was just like, it's a badge. They're all badges. So great. This brings us to the introduction of the um, artifact that will become important. So with that said, let's go ahead and get another clip from Dr. Albaran about the way that the Aztecs, who are an indigenous culture of Mexico, um, have been characterized throughout history. So we're discussing a film episode that has just a really surface level depiction of an Aztec artifact in it. And so in your experience as a scholar, have you seen like recurring stereotypical or inaccurate depictions of Latin American history, whether that's broadly or particular kind of indigenous cultures at all? Certainly. Yeah, I think that using Aztec imagery as kind of a trope for all Latin American cultures, um, all Mexican indigenous cultures and all Latin American indigenous cultures in general is kind of a surface level depiction of uh of Latin America that crops up in a lot of usually light pop culture phenomenon so children's cartoons TV shows um 
there are other depictions that go hand in glove with it, the sombrero and serape, for example, um, to depict a certain kind of Mexicanness. But um, but yeah, the the Aztec imagery I think is something that is readily recognizable in the visual vocabulary of a lot of Americans as something from Mexico's exotic past, and um, and it does seem to crop up pretty readily. So I'm going to put a pin in this for a second and keep going because there's a little bit more to cover. But that's kind of where Dr. Albron starts us off and then it's going to become more and more relevant what she has to say later. So let's move on to the curator. We learn his name is Gordon, who just sticks his hand right on in there. Um, he's Don't do that. Apparently cleaning it. Uh, he drops. He drops something in it. He's examining it from the inside, like with one of those dental mirrors, and it falls in. He's like, oh, "I'm gonna try and get it out," and it bites him. Which again, he there is a huge hole in the top, and yet he thinks to himself, "However, will I get this tiny object out? I'm gonna stick my hand in the mouth," which is not. Well, there's big lots of like delicate things that look like they could break off. And yes, so this was, again, like, I'm not trying to be like, because I haven't worked in a museum, worked special collection is different, but it's like, no one really handles an artifact this way. And I would like to headcanon that like, the artifact has driven other people insane, or I don't know why, but I get this impression throughout the episode that this guy Gordon is not like, the Aztec expert, he's like a person working there who gets kind of whammied. He's a nondescript science guy because he's wearing a lab coat and that's all that TV needs us to know about him is he is the kind of guy who wears a lab coat. Maybe he's checking the artifact to see, again, the, they were really smart by putting the president in play here because you don't know, it's not that far from like when anthrax was happening. There might have been like checking random things he might have touched. Like the president might touch this. Make sure no one put poison on it. We just don't know. The president is a very convenient excuse for errors in this episode. Yeah, so he sticks his hand into the mouth of the artifact, uh, cuts himself, draws blood, and this is the start of something not great. So the clip we're going to have now is Dr. Albaran talking about what I believe she used the phrase uh, we might call Aztec bloodlust. And that ties into the kind of universalizing of the Mexican exotic past as this deeply bloodthirsty religious sacrificing culture and how there's a lot more to think about with that. Uh, so let's hear what she has to say. So have you seen the depiction of kind of these notorious blood sacrifices just kind of perpetuated out of context a lot? Yeah, something that I don't know why, but for, that always comes to mind because it's it stuck in my mind as kind of a, a turning point in the middle of the Latin boom in Latin American pop culture, which was in the mid-90s. Um, there was a lot of new attention to uh, an increasing Latin American demographic in the U.S. that had consumer power. Um, and so there was a lot of cultural production in the mid-90s that was intended to both appeal sometimes misguidedly to that new consumer population in the U.S., and also to maybe represent or reflect in sometimes quite awkward ways <laughs> the, 
the um the like embo- new embodied presence in the US. And so we had a lot of pop music during that time period that was from Puerto Rico, from Colombia, from Mexico that was that people started to become more familiar with, but for some reason the film franchises of the the filmmaker Robert Rodriguez um, really stands out in my mind, especially the sort of awful, in my opinion, <laughs> film uh, from *Dust Till Dawn*. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's kind of a Tarantino-esque, um, total bloodlust um, scene that takes place in like a Western bar, and the whole movie is just pretty graphic violence throughout the whole thing. The last scene of the movie is the one that. It really comes back to this topic. The movie pans out, and you see that the bar where all of this graphic violence takes place is sitting atop an Aztec-style pyramid for for no real apparent reason. <laughs> um, but a lot of the characters, like Danny Trejo, who's like uh, you know famously in the movie Machete and in in is the bad Mexican in tons of movies um he was famously like the the most gruesome you know bloodiest character in that movie and there were lots of other characters that were Mexican or Mexican American in that movie and then it turns out that the whole thing is on top of this Aztec pyramid apparently the metaphor was intended to show some continuity between that Aztec bloodlust uh for human sacrifice and some kind of current day violent fantasy um in a in a western bar um and making that like strange statement at the end of the movie i think was a a a really kind of iconographic um reflection of that what you're suggesting this casting of all of aztec society and culture uh as fully turned over to this one practice of human sacrifice without talking about the context in which those human sacrifices were carried out. So I know, Jill, with the caveat that you are a film scholar and not an Aztec historian like Dr. Albaran, that you were actually learning about this topic recently and that maybe you can kind of continue to build on what Dr. Albaran has told us just now. Um, I was listening to a lecture series, uh, The Great Courses by Dr. Ken Albala, in case anyone is wondering and he goes through like different periods and different cultures and one of the things I learned first of all is the sacrifices have a lot to do with like a lot of religions getting their start from the discovery of agriculture and then things go off in different ways for different cultures and in Aztec culture one of the ways that one of the directions it took was sacrifices to the gods that like fed you because you start to worship gods because they allowed you to farm instead of being hunter-gatherer blah 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 the interesting situation with the Aztecs is that they're the closest thing that the new world air quotes has to like Greeks and Romans because before the Aztecs there were the Olmecs and the Toltecs and then there were all the other contemporaneous like um cultures but Aztecs sort of absorbed a lot of what that is so I think for brevity's sake more like Western culture tends to just simplify and be like, we can get most of what we need from this one source. Yes, and that's actually something not in a clip that I played right now, but something that Dr. Albaran completely validates by saying that Mexico is partly complicit in the glorification of Aztec culture. 
um, because they do, on a global stage, want to compete with the the big mythos of like Europeans having the Greeks and Romans and whatever. Uh, so they create the the idea of a sort of Mexican classical age. Which it which it did. It, it just it also did it in the same way that the Greeks and Romans did by overtaking other cultures and then absorbing them into their own. So we get this bad event and then we go back to the gallery where Micah and Pete are going to have their first interaction together. Which I wrote, not loving how he seems to be a big jerk to women. I just wrote as a note that this is not my favorite TV trope of angry straight-laced woman needs to be taught by fun-loving male partner how to loosen up. Which again isn't their dynamic going forward but it's the dynamic that they've chosen to introduce for us which as the episode goes on like I love their relationship but I don't really know what was up with the introductions they don't match what we see going forward and they're not as revolutionary as the show is absolutely and this is kind of my note there's this whole thing about Pete wrote the protocol to protect the president Micah tweaked it and Pete's upset about it Uh, Micah says, we're calling home base magenta. And Pete says, I'm not. And then later says, pull your head out of your magenta. I wrote that down too, because it's a good wordplay line, but also extremely suggestive. I wrote, is this misogyny? In all caps. It is misogyny. I mean, I don't think that line could get written in the same way now. It might be written, but the context would have to be changed a little bit. I want it to not be. <laughs> I want it to not be. <laughs> because of the wordplay being so effective, like it is an effective play on words, it can't mean anything else. It has to be misogynistic. And it, it works on multiple levels because magenta, you know, a pinky purple is a stereotypical woman color. So you have like double layer of kind of misogynistic metaphor and again, like, it doesn't make any sense for Pete to, like, Pete is in this moment the type of male character who is upset by strong women. And we do not see that later in his character at all. It's just like, oh, here he he can't stand this smart, attractive, very successful female agent being better than him. Yes, I I see that reading, but for me, I I felt like I was seeing too much of the writing here. The way it felt to me was that there was an earlier draft, and there was playful banter, and she was annoyed at him, and he just wasn't caring. Then it feels like for the draft that they wound up going with, someone said, okay, but make it conflict. So they just introduced some unnecessary angst there. Yes. I would have loved it if he was just sort of poking fun And she's in a dark place right now. She just got transferred here after something really bad happened and she wasn't in the mood for that. She just wanted to get the job done and go home. So at this point, a mysterious man in fingerless gloves appears and zaps one of the other Secret Service security people. So not Peter Micah, but he gets someone out of the way. So the first we see of this world of this man is this serious, wild-haired, determined guy who is on a mission and seems a little wacky. 
Yes. And just at this moment in the show, we have learned that Pete gets vibes. He tells Micah she should change her plan because she needs to pull her head out of her magenta to read the room is what he's kind of saying. So like she plays by the book, whereas he feels out what's actually happening and his vibes as he describes them are alerting him to something hinky about the artifact, which is very realistically placed in front of a dinosaur. Something's glowing, so it's not uh, great. And uh, he gets the urge to act on that. So he goes to take the artifact and run away with it, which is, again, obviously his vibes because he just flashes his badge and is like, oh, I'm the Secret Service. I guess I gotta take this. Not sure why, but I do. That tells us a lot about him, and I I agree. I don't think that was the correct call in any realistic scenario but in a world where warehouse 13 exists i think it was the correct call i think that's the kind of person they're on the lookout for yes exactly and i think that his instincts make such good sense it's like his vibe tells him that this artifact is dangerous so what does he do He takes it out of the space full of people. Like, he gets it away from the humans who could be harmed by it. He doesn't know why it's dangerous or what it does. But as a person, and as a person with this sort of spiritual, I don't know what you want to call it, supernatural vibey thing, he is trusting that, and it's cool. And I do want to say that, like, we get more on it later, but I think it's fair to say that we can get it from context now, that Micah is extremely observant and she's not emotionally unintelligent she's just in a not great place but I think it's interesting that they have someone with such high observational skills paired with someone with vibes because it makes it more distinct on his part that it's not just a feeling that you get from sort of noticing the way things are around you because Micah notices the way things are around you his are on a deeper less observational level Yes, because Micah also sees that something is off. Gordon walks past her. He's not looking great. She does the coolest thing. Say whatever you want about the fight scene. She steps out of her shoes just really coolly, really calmly, just boop, boop. And it is awesome because she is in her, I don't know, civilian clothes. She's dressed in a black dress. She looks amazing. She's got her shoes on, which would possibly inhibit her, you know, skills. And so she steps out just in time for this Gordon guy to start going at the president, I guess. Like, the president is coming in. There had been this debate between Pete and Micah about whether or not it was safe. They let him in, and then Gordon goes, and Micah's right there to confront that. Yeah, I loved that completely. Also, I noted, like, it wasn't just feminist for her to do that and it wasn't just practical for her to not wear heels when entering a fight heels are a weapon they are sharp objects that can hurt and i don't think for a second that that isn't something that crossed her mind sure and that's i i can't remember how the fight scene goes down um she stops like she stops him with the knife then he puts it to her throat and She's like, nobody, nobody shoot because everyone's surrounding and they're like, we're gonna, we're gonna shoot him. And she's like, that's not necessary. And she sort of de-escalates the situation. So she fights him off. I believe some people during our live tweet found the fight awkward. I thought it was quite realistic in terms of fights are not, I mean, we do get some awesome fights, I'm sure in Warehouse 13, but fights in, 
real life are generally, you know, you do a couple of kicks, you do a couple punches, and she does a great job and is successful. So I think it worked great in my my personal opinion. Yeah, and like I did Krav Maga for a while, and they would always say your goal in a fight is to end the fight in one punch or one kick. <laughs> you you don't want an extended fight scene, and I think someone anyone trained enough to be a secret service agent knows the less violence the better right so that's perfect and that brings us to the confrontation between the currently unnamed mysterious man and pete so micah has fought off this guy but the bloodstone is really glowing and something is happening and uh this mysterious person is gonna try taking it away from pete he's gonna try to do something that pete doesn't understand And the blood disappears, which is the salient point to me. Because everything else up to that point, we can sort of describe as science we do not yet understand. Whereas blood just disappearing as something is resolved is firmly supernatural. Yes. And I think that's interesting for two reasons. One, it immediately brings the fantasy element into the sci-fi fantasy genre, which I think is really interesting. And also, Pete doesn't tell Micah about it. He doesn't say, that's why we're here, that's what we did. And I think that goes to his emotional intelligence, and it's, it, he, that's where he starts to become the Pete that we really like. Because, like, a friggin' ferret manifests in front of her <laughs> later, and, like, she's still not convinced. She's just like, I just want to forget what I just saw and go home. So, and that was something she experienced firsthand. I think he's emotionally intelligent enough to know that if he goes to this very job-oriented, grieving woman, which she is, and says, I saw this crazy supernatural thing happen, it would not help her, it would not bring them closer, it would not foster trust between them, and I think it's very interesting and likable that he let her figure her stuff out on her own. Yes, and I wonder if this actually ties to exactly what you're discussing, which is that after the incident is de-escalated, well... I suppose we have to say that the mysterious man neutralizes the artifact. And knew who Pete was. Yes. He's, he says Pete's name. He puts the artifact. I know, it is, it is the purple goo in some sort of container. Yeah. And then they make it, obviously, with the effects that the thing is, I don't know, sparking or glowing or... Mm-hmm changing and then everything is better and we get to the resolution of the scene in the gallery where interestingly Micah is getting praised and Pete is being reprimanded for his actions. It makes sense. He wasn't at his post when he was supposed to be. He ignored orders from the person running the operation. He took an artifact and ran out of the room when that's not his objective. I mean, he he did the right thing, but as far as they're all concerned, he's protecting the president. He didn't communicate to anyone what was happening. If he had communicated to someone what was happening, they wouldn't have believed him and it would have been a distraction anyway, so I get it. But, like, there were factors in his decision-making that don't matter to his bosses. His job was to protect the president and monitor the room, and he just left while one of his colleagues was attacked. That's not okay. You are correct. I was thinking just on a 
viewer of the TV show level, which is like, he, Pete, actually saved the day. He, Pete, alerted Micah to the fact that you couldn't just rely on the plan. You had to kind of pay attention to the emotions of other people. And so in my mind, I was like, well, he kind of had a clue that nobody else had. Um, and that's true, but you're right. From a Secret Service agent supervisor perspective, he has done a very bad job at his job. But I think it's also worth noting, like, I think this is the reason that the powers that be of the warehouse bring him in. because I mean, bring them both in. Because his job was absolutely necessary, but if it was only Pete, the president still would have gotten stabbed. They would have got the artifact, but the president still would have gotten stabbed. There has to be someone on the practical level, on the ground, who takes the correct actions to minimize risk. And while he does it on the supernatural level, she's out there protecting the individual people. I agree a million percent. My only point of contention is that he says his specialty is logistics, which is the boringest, mathiest, <laughs> most mica job. And so maybe that's a throwaway line. Um, maybe I am misunderstanding what logistics means, but... <laughs> I doubt it. I don't think I am. I mean, that word means planning, and it means, like, the exact thing he mentions in the beginning where he had laid out the posts of the guards, and that was what Micah had changed. So we know Pete actually did this boring thing of making the plans, but then he simultaneously has the power to change his mind as the room changes. Yeah, I, first of all, I don't think he made the plans for this specific scenario. I think he was saying he wrote the general manual on how these things go. But like, I don't think he was in charge of this event. And I mean, I agree. But that line was also a part of the scene that screamed rewrite to me. <laughs> it just none of that scene made sense or gelled and I this was an extended episode and everything we're talking about happened before the teaser teaser and act one are shoved together in this pilot I don't know if they will be going forward but we have 34 minutes ish I believe of content before we see the opening logo mm -hmm. which firmly puts this in the setup section so all of that's just sort of set up that I think got reworked a lot I don't know if this was originally its own pilot, if maybe the original version of the pilot just focused on the Aztec artifact, and then they were like, well, no, actually, that's not enough action. We should combine it and make a longer episode. I just don't know. But it seems sort of like that might have been what happened. Yes. So let me move to my next point um after everything is settled jill's smiling really big because cch pounder is in pete's house yes or within the show i described her as a statuesque black woman visits pete in his home she shows up she's there before he gets there she's made her way in uh, which to me is a big deal because if you are a Secret Service agent, you mm -hmm. probably have a very well locked up, protected home. Uh, but she's there and she is ready to talk to him about a new assignment, a top secret mission. So um, I guess it's time for a segment that we call Actor Spotlight. I love CCH Pounder. She is an amazing actress. 
who has an incredibly just go to IMDb and look at her filmography. It stretches back eons. At the point in time in this show, she had just come off, I think, about six years on the television series The Shield, which I'm not talking about Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. It has nothing to do with superheroes. It is a multiple award nominated and winning show about a group of corrupt cops starring Michael Chiklis and she is in it in a very pivotal role with a lot of range and it might have been her highest profile role to date um so she came that show ended in 2008 this premiered in 2009 just to give you a sense of where her career was at she is incredible and provides a level of poise and gravity to the show that just wasn't there before we saw her. This was a fun, poppy introduction to a show with a lot of action, and but she single-handedly, by showing up, provides like a level of gravitas to it, which is really great acting on her part, but also really, really excellent costuming and lighting and a lot of intricate decision makings too. I have eternal slash immortal vibes from her uh, she shows up with a very chic chignon bun and a very heavy tweed matching dress and coat set a long coat set with very sort of i'd call it conveniently mid-century 50s look it's the kind of thing that never really goes out of style but also feels very appropriate to an older time and place she seems somehow removed from time because her age doesn't match the aesthetic that we see of her. If she was a person who was to live by that aesthetic, she should theoretically be older, which I thought was very interesting. And to your point, how she got in, I have a theory that she does not use doors, or at least not the, the doors provided to you. Well, that's what... She says, uh, maybe not in this scene. It's later. She said, how did you get in the Dickinson's office? She says, he says, how did you get in here? And she says, through a door. Not the door. A door. It's so cool and so scary, but, like, not not villain scary. Like, poise scary. Like, she yeah, is. she's poised. And that is the contrast I was talking about when we first meet Artie. He's wild. He's unpredictable. He doesn't think his thoughts through before he says them and he gets angry when you don't understand all the thoughts that are racing through his head and he can only get the one word out of his mouth and he just needs you to get it she is the opposite she is collected she is clean cut she has thought 8,502 steps ahead of you and can tell you every single one of those steps and it provides this really great balance in the world of what this warehouse is that is different than Micah and Pete. Yes, and I think to your points as well, one of the things that I noticed about the character Mrs. Frederick, um, as she is given her name, is that she moves like a statue. We mentioned Micah as a statue before, but Mrs. Frederick stands and sits with a straight back and with like an unmoving, like, shoulders back, chin up, like she is just this powerful presence in any room and any scene that she's in. And it, on the one hand, it is her gravitas as an actress and a person, but it is also like 
something she is bringing to the character knowing whatever it is she knows about the character and it's it's just so cool it adds instant depth it makes you ask more questions than it provides answers for and it's the kind of thing that makes you want to keep coming back she also points out something like uh you're coming with me on this secret mission he doesn't want to but she she points out that he doesn't really have a life here in dc she's like what do you have to lose uh, and I got the vibe from her that she wants him to grow up. Uh, she's this powerful female figure who's looking at this young man just like, dude, you have got to get out of this rut of being a kind of goofball and live your potential as this more... The, the warehouse agent job we ultimately learn is a much better fit for Pete and his vibes and his actions than what he is currently doing. Interesting. I read it completely differently. I, and, and I'm not saying you're wrong. I was just, I just got a completely different feeling from it. For me, she, the way she smirks at him, first of all, I think she sees something in him. Like, what have you got here? I'm offering you something cool. Come on. <laughs> but also, it made me really sad because especially going forward you see the way he vibes and gets on with Artie and you see this similarity in the poise between Mrs. Frederick and Micah and it's gives me this feeling like in some sort of long-term way they're grooming their replacements for themselves and you see Mrs. Frederick is great she seems to have turned out fine as far as we know we don't know a lot about her but Artie does not turn out fine. He is full of loss and neuroses and that sort of, hey, snappy, fun-loving guy that we see Pete as has turned into this neurotic, sad, lonely guy who's all on his own. And it just made me real sad for him. That is really good um, when you look at it in the way you did. Thanks. I was not thinking that far ahead because I suppose it's like in the moment where they first, where Pete first meets Mrs. Frederick, you don't think that it's going to be this, you know, eternal project that takes up your whole life, you know. So when she tempts him, and I do think you're right, there's this sparkle in her eye of, you know, the invitation to endless wonder when she says that. So you're like, okay, it's going to be exciting. It's going to be possibly temporary, as Micah really wants it to be later in the episode. (laughs) So either way, it brings them to a very snappy cut. I called it a title card. Is it a title card? Yeah, you can call it a title card. Yeah. So a snappy cut to South Dakota with a cool title card. Uh, telling you that they are in the Badlands of South Dakota. And I liked it. I think the yeah. mus- the music is good, the tone is good, and it sets you up for something exciting is happening. There is a shift in the direction of the show. Uh, you know, they've got the intro to everybody out of the way, and now we're going to go see why there's all this weirdness around this Aztec thing at the museum today. But just to be clear, that intro was an entire episode's worth of content oh i know whole arc which is fascinating to me which is why this pilot doesn't necessarily do the job of a typical pilot of setting up this is what every episode is going to look like because there is no way that this is what every episode is going to look like which i find really interesting well and this is uh, the strange thing to me is that i was trying to divide my notes into sections and like 
section one, in my mind, just like you said, ends when he gets that invitation. Um, we don't know how Micah got her invitation, but we learned she's also invited to come out to South Dakota. Um, but like... We, we, we do say, like, Mrs. Frederick showed up at her place the same at, way. At her house the same way? Okay. Yeah. So she, they show up, and then it's like section one and a half, we learn what the warehouse is, and then this whole other part that we'll get to later is like the back half of there's this college kid, he's in a domestic dispute, there's an artifact involved. Like, that whole arc is, I think, like the first episode of Warehouse 13. All of this is like setup, which is fine, and a pilot does, but it's like so long, so much is happening. And I was trying to find online, like, was this two different episodes that aired back to back? And I don't think it ever was. I think it was just a, you know, one and a half hour or however long it is, extra special first episode. That's really quite a lot to digest and just keeps going. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because the first section that we just went through I was texting you about this earlier. It's almost enough for a whole episode, but it's not quite there because it doesn't get us to the warehouse. I wouldn't be surprised if like an early version of the pilot had just that part written and someone's like, you can't call it Warehouse 13 and then only show us the warehouse at the end and give us no other information. Like, you know, like it it felt like this is one and a half episodes worth of content. It's not a full episode there. But it gave us a really, really meaty introduction, which you don't always get. Like, and I sort of, I get that it might not be everyone's cup of tea. Someone want, some people want to just jump right in and get to it. But I value an intricate setup done really well. Warehouse 13 really provided that in a way that's pretty rare for shows that aren't on premium cable like HBO and Showtime. Well, so I have a bit of a question is that we're talking as if we have gotten the Warehouse 13 title, but there's actually all these these interactions in between arriving at the warehouse and getting the welcome to Warehouse 13. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, I think, maybe what you're saying, where it's like, we don't quite get them to the warehouse before the first episode feels like it's time. It's like, yeah, we get to South Dakota, we get to a long drive, through the Badlands and Pete's GPS acting wonky and then him showing up and yelling at an empty warehouse kind of like goofily. And then, you know, Micah arrives and there's a random cow. I believe, I have a theory, that the cow moves each time a new character enters the scene. This includes the warehouse, which we might also interpret as a character. Yes. So it's like Pete arrives, the cow moves. Pete stands outside of the warehouse and the warehouse creaks and like does something weird and the cow moves again. Mike the cow po- has a collar. The cow belongs to someone. Oh, the cow absolutely is like a local, like he he knows Artie at least. Like he is a cow from the area. I mean, we know he poos there a lot because <laughs> he poos there's a, a big pile. A huge mountain in the same spot every day. The cow just poos <laughs> until it's 10 feet tall. No, but possibly. I mean, there are a lot of cows in South Dakota. Um, We then see Artie arrive, and we learn his name. He introduces himself as Arthur Nielsen. And this is upsetting to Pete because he is like, that's the guy, the guy who stole the rock. 
Which is also funny because we have all of these great interview clips that this is a sacred artifact from an indigenous culture. And they're like, the rock this, the rock that. Like, they don't really seem to care about what the artifact is. And he doesn't have a reason to. He's a Secret Service agent. He has one job, protect the president. The rest is just sort of arbitrary to him. I suppose that's true. But he blames Artie for his, because we, we said Pete gets reprimanded. He's, it doesn't go well for him. He's not happy about it. So he's like, this is the guy that stole the thing. And to make things worse, like, Artie shows up with these goggles on. He's always wearing his weird fingerless gloves in this episode, even though it looks hot outside. I don't know if it is, but he's, like, got this crazy steampunk metal detector gadget, and he shows up looking like, I wrote, an extra from Mad Max. That's why he makes me sad. He has been alone too long and I will say I have a lot of background in like writing for lots of different subjects not just creative writing but also writing course content and helping to teach people and helping professors to prepare classes and at one point I was writing something about the history of law enforcement and the history of the justice system and some of the stuff they tell you so that you can train cops and one thing that people tell cops a lot is someone who doesn't dress appropriately for the weather, that's a sign that they are an unstable person. Aww. Artie makes me sad. He is lonely. He has lost his mind a little bit in not a kooky fun way, in a I want to give him a hug and give him some hope kind of way. So I wonder if it would be a good time for my actor spotlight. You gave us a spotlight on CCH Pounder, and I have one on Saul Rubinek. Saul Rubinek is a very versatile actor. Uh, he's been in a lot of award-winning films, including serious ones, uh, especially in the 80s and 90s. He has been most recognized as uh, an award-winning supporting actor in the 1981 drama Ticket to Heaven, um, which I have not seen, but is a film about a cult. But in my experience, because I love science fiction, He's kind of this staple extra who shows up in a lot of sci-fi shows for one episode. And he often plays a quirky character. And movies. Sure. I So I am not a movies person. Um, I believe that he's in a million movies. I'm a, I am a person who's mostly seen television. He's in an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. He is a quirky collector who's trying to kidnap Data, um, the android, as part of his collection, which I think is beautifully relevant to Warehouse 13. It's an episode in season three, episode 22 of The Next Generation called The Most Toys. And it's funny because you see Artie, he's super young. He's, his skin is all shiny. He's wearing purple like it's a Star Trek Next Generation thing. Um, but that's not his only role, and it's not his only hugely recognizable show that he's been in. Um, he's in two separate episodes of The Outer Limits. He's in an episode of Stargate. He's in an episode of Lost. And it's, that's important to point out, too, because those aren't just sci-fi shows that exist. Those are iconic parts of television history that he is a part of them. Exactly. So that's kind of what I was thinking, is that he has been in these huge shows in a small way and now he's going to be in a small show in a huge way and he's going to use all of these talents for acting in science fiction 
to like the fullest extent. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm not going to go into huge spoilers, but his character grows and goes through some stuff, some real serious stuff that's really hard. Or it's Saul Rubinek that sells you how much of a struggle this character kind of experiences. And, and he, that's another reason he's a great balance to CCH Pounder because the two of them together, like, we have that lovely fish out of water aspect from Pete and Micah, but we have this really lived in bone weariness mm-hmm. from Saul and this really learned, experienced, cautious perspective from Frederick, CCH Pounder, and together they make the show not light anymore and they give the actors playing Pete and Micah permission to go to deeper darker places too they don't have to keep it in this sort of poppy fun we got to keep it snappy place they can sort of go to the dark places which gives it more range and makes the funny moments funnier because you want them more and I love what you're saying because one of the things I notice the most about Saul Rubinek as an actor and I am not an actor Jillian has done theater and acting but When Saul Rubinek is with another actor, that actor benefits from his presence. Like, if, and it's not just the actor, but it's the characters, right? Like, when Pete and Micah are together, they have a more upbeat kind of banter. When either Artie and Pete or Micah and Pete are together, they can have these serious talks because it's really small in this this kind of scene where we're at, where they come into the warehouse where Artie, we know, has, you know, the background information about Pete and Micah. And he offers some cookies. It's kind of quirky, but also, as Jill says, a little sad. He's trying to get them in. Pete is happy to come in for the promise of cookies, and he's kind of just along for the ride. But when he sees kind of this crazy warehouse, he suggests that he wants a drink. And uh, Artie says, well, it's not a good time to fall off the wagon. And we, in that really beautifully written interaction, we learn that Pete is an alcoholic. No one says, Pete, you're an alcoholic, but we get the language of AA and we get what is immediately recognized as character wants a drink. Artie says, you know, you're sober, don't do it, and offers him milk. And it's like Micah is off in a corner kind of doing her own thing. And just by being together on the side with this tiny, tiniest of interactions, all of a sudden my heart is like, oh, Pete's an alcoholic. Like this is heavy and this is development for this character. And this is bringing those depths into someone who we've seen as kind of this sex boy um, slash. He's not really a sex boy, but he's a a funny kind of carefree guy. Yeah, I completely agree. That's what actors are talking about when they say, like, I'm sure everyone has read interviews where it's like, yeah, we have a really great working relationship. We really trust each other. That's what that means is there are times when you're acting and you can see it with Saul. You can see it with CCH Pounder. These moments where they look at you in a way that compels you to give something back to them. When CCH Pounder is looking at Pete and being like, come on, what have you got to lose here? Really? It's not, she's not just saying the words. She's looking at him and you can't just zone out or look away. You have to physically respond to it. And that 
magnetism that you give off that asking for a response is what makes a character feel real and whole and human and compels the other actor to meet you there. Yes. So we're mostly to the end of this part before we get the title. Essentially, Pete and Micah come in. We don't really get an explanation yet. We have this like weird entryway with this like Cheshire cat spinny room. And then they enter a strange room. It looks kind of steampunk. It's all old. First impressions, lots of stuff. It's the same as when we were in the museum. The first things we see are things. We don't see people. And I think that's sort of the other thing that goes to the sort of sadness of Artie is he is surrounded by things and no one. And so when you're in a museum, you're like, look at all this beautiful stuff. Like, I can't believe there's so much to learn. And then when you go into this dark space that's overcrowded with objects and no other humans, you're like, oh, we're somewhere now. Oh, for sure. And it's old looking and I think as we grow accustomed to the show, we find it rather charming. But in this first interaction, it's like, oh, this guy is hanging out in here. We don't know why. And they're kind of just having their little introduction, but he leads them through that first room and into like, I don't know. It's like there's an office overlooking the warehouse and they go to the sort of balcony of the office, if you can call it that. And then we look out over what this thing is. What it is is their entire special effects budget for the season. <laughs> right? We get a really long zoomy zoom, zoom, zoom. Like, it just keeps going and it shows us, you know, Jill said this, but it shows us the warehouse is bigger on the inside. It gives us the idea that this is not just a literal box of things or this warehouse storage of things, but it's like, supernaturally large and fantastic and I almost expect I don't know why I think it's like a visual um memory of Torchwood it's like I expect there to be a pterodactyl flying overhead I think they have stuff hanging from the ceiling and that's why there's a zeppelin guys floating there this is why like in my mind it's like and then they keep zooming out and there's stuff flying inside um yes a zeppelin makes more sense especially considering that it is a um steampunk show which we'll talk about in episode two of our podcast but it's like yeah they they show you that it is unreally big and like you can see micah's starting to get shaken mm -hmm. she's not there to believing that something is supernatural but she's there to believing she wants to go away and not have to confront this right now pete is like whoa that's weird he's just sort of like there for it pete is very open in a way that makes me want to protect him he is so eager and he doesn't see the parallels between himself and Artie, which is terrifying to me because I'm like, no, protect yourself or this will be you. Which like we see, we see um, that picture of his old teammates or, you know, whatever you would call them. And he says like, oh yeah, that guy disappeared or something. Yeah, it's like. De oh, these are your old colleagues. Dead, dead, disappeared, gone for a hundred years. Like, they're just all listed off as gone. And, like, I don't even think Micah overheard that or didn't pay attention to it because she would have walked out the door immediately considering what her storyline is right now. Like, she's not in the mood to process losing another possible partner of any kind. And he, I mean, I'm not saying he doesn't have depth. He's 
overcome addiction. He has, you know, strength. He is heroic and he has what it takes to be a secret service agent. But he, I think, has a, a naiveness and openness to him that is dangerous. His emotional openness is yeah. like is beautiful it's so sweet it's so important and he's like that's why we love him but it's i think it's his character's greatest strength and greatest flaw which is a really hard kind of thing to write and sell in any meaningful way but they pull it off and i think this is where we start to get a level of depth to the characters that wasn't there in the teaser Well, that sounds like the perfect place to leave off for today. I definitely don't want to go too long in this first episode, but I do hope everyone will return for part two of the pilot, the second half of this, our very first episode of Podcast 13. Thank you so much to everyone who tuned in. We could not do this without your support, your love and uh, affection on Twitter, and everyone who is using our online fan forums absolutely come over to our website and talk to us come over to our twitter and talk to us because we want to ask the experts the questions that you have and discuss the scenes that you discussed with us during our live tweets live chats and those sorts of things so for more information you can visit our website warehouse13pod.com that's warehouse13pod.com And you will also see a big support us button there. You've heard this a million times from a million podcasts, but we are not funded by any subscription box capitalist companies. So all of our uh, funding is coming from my own pocket and it's pretty rough. So if there's even a dollar you can spare, absolutely, we appreciate it more than anything. And we will give shout outs next week to the people who are currently helping us out. So everybody enjoy the rest of your day, night, uh, whatever. And we will see you very, very soon. Goodbye.